Welcome back, documenting listeners. I'm so glad you've joined us again today for another episode. And I have said this before, and I can't stress it enough. Truly, your feedback is everything. We got a report that someone listens to this while they have chemotherapy to encourage them and just to recognize the power of God. And I just want to say that that makes the work and the effort that goes into this completely worth it. You are who we're doing it for. We are doing this to glorify the character of God and to just document what he's doing in people's lives. And so I just want to say thank you for DMs, for messages, for your feedback. If this helps you at all, please drop us a note or drop us a review, share it with other people. And we just really, really love you guys and appreciate all the support. Today we have, in my humble opinion, the greatest storyteller of all time, my father. He's joining us, Tom Payne. He's got a lot of different stories, but I handpicked this one because it's just one of my favorites and really powerful story of intervention. Just a little introduction to my father. I often get asked by people who know him, what is it like to be raised by Pastor Payne? And so just a couple of things about my dad. He just is a man of conviction and principle. And that really meant a lot to me that I saw that consistency and that he really was genuine about his faith. And as a kid, he had this amazing ability of making sin look so stupid. He just made the things of this world look stupid and the things of God just seem like the logical and the amazing choice and just putting so much value on us as a woman of God. And just teaching us what we want in a man and how we want to be treated. And he taught me about entrepreneurship from a very young age, whether we were having a lemonade stand or one time cinnamon rolls, he would front the cost of things. And then we'd be so excited. We'd be like, oh my gosh, we made whatever it was like $60. And my dad would be like, oh, okay. Are you, you know, so it's $25 for what I fronted you. And we would just kind of like blink hard at him. And he'd be like, you have to pay us back the cost. And then you need to pay another $25 so that you can do it again next week. So really your profit was $10. Really good life lessons like that. Almost every day we had Rush Limbaugh on at some point in the day and just being in the car with him, he would just explain different things to me. I'd be like, dad, I don't understand this. And he just had an awesome way of explaining it to me. It's things that I realize now that I'm a parent and I've also realized that not every family and not every father was doing that. And so I really appreciate that about my dad. He's my father. I love him. This is a great story. So without further ado, here is my dad. Well, thank you, Melissa and Ray Lynn. It's a great honor to be here. And I've heard a lot about your podcast. Been saved in Prescott, discipled under Pastor Mitchell and sent out and had pastored in Las Vegas, Nevada, pioneered in upstate New York. And then we were in our third posting in Farmington, New Mexico. It was during that time that I actually had the honor of going on an international trip to Kenya. And it so uh, moved me, the potential and the fruitfulness there, that I actually made myself available to Pastor Mitchell to to go there if he had a need. There didn't uh, seem to be a need at that time, but um, he has a memory like a steel trap. And so... It would have been at least three years later that I was still in Farmington and very comfortable there and very optimistic about the future there. But God began to deal with me about going to Kenya. I went on another trip to Kenya and God began to prepare my heart and stir me that um, he wanted me to go there and take the Nairobi church, which is the National Leadership Church, So through a series of events, Pastor Mitchell asked me to go. And so we did. Went to Nairobi, Kenya, which was an established church. It had, the fellowship had had the church there for at least 13 years. The initial missionary to Nairobi was given two plus acres of land by the government. And it's not given as a freehold. It's given as a lease. And it was given with promise from the missionary that he was going to build a permanent structure 
and also do some other significant community services on the property. And by the time we took the church, it was a very large church. There could easily be 1,200 people there on Sunday morning, but it was still in a tent. And it wasn't a bad looking tent. It was actually a quite sophisticated facility, but nonetheless, it was a tent. And I was told by the initial missionary when I went there that you're going to need to build a permanent structure on there because it's very possible that if you don't, you could lose that property. So that was the setup. And we arrived in Nairobi and we were there for less than a year. And it happened to be an election year. And so that may not sound like a whole lot to a Westerner, but in a third world country, especially Nairobi at the time, that's very chaotic because it's kind of a democracy and kind of not. There's lots of corruption there. And during these election years, there could be violence, there could be demonstrations, and anything could happen. But I'm largely unaware of that. I'm just enjoying life. I'm a missionary and a great adventure, and we're having lots of people get saved. It seemed like we were there for nine months of the first calendar year, and it would have been midway through that first nine months that this happened. So what what happened first is we had a young man who lived on the property, and he was kind of the caretaker. And it was discovered that he was doing a number of things that were quite dishonest, quite corrupt. And this began to be exposed to the point where we actually had to remove him from the property. In the African mindset, this was quite a challenge because a man like that would have lived there for a number of years and felt some level of entitlement to living there. They they have this mindset of squatter's rights. So to a Western mind, here's a man who was stealing, he was uh, oppressing people. Then it became that he was actually going to help some people that had been part of the organization years before that left to actually take over the church. So again, this is all new to me. This isn't, uh, wasn't in the discipleship manual. <laughs> I'd never gone through anything like this in my first three postings, you know. And so I'm, I'm simply functioning the way I feel is righteous. We actually had to evict this young man and his family from the property. We treated them very well. We actually found him another house. We paid six months rent. We moved him. We would have given him a significant salary supplement. When he left, he began to begin a campaign against the church. And one of the things he did was he made threats that he was going to get the CID to plant drugs in my house to get me kicked out of the country, things like that. So the CID would be the Central Intelligence Division. It would be almost like the CIA or the FBI. So, I mean, these, to me, these were idle threats. And, and so we, we, we felt like we moved on, but there was some serious rumblings. There were some serious challenges. So at that time, I reached out to another missionary from another organization who had helped our organization get into the country years before. And uh, was a great man, really helpful. And he told me, he said, he said, Tom, what you need to do is go downtown to the registrar's office and you need to make sure that this person who's creating you trouble has not paid a bribe and gotten into your file because if they have enough money, they can actually bribe officials to remove the legitimate office holders. And you can wake up and not even be in the organization anymore. And uh, the police come and escort you off the property because you have no legal right to be there. I said, oh, corruption is rife there. It's hard to, it's hard to imagine the level. And um, so... This is what's being explained to me by this other missionary. 
And so he sent me on a journey to the registrar's office to make sure that we were still the office bearers of this society, which is what they called it. The society was a nonprofit government institutional, what would you call it? It's just an organization that you apply for and it gives you permission to be a church. So we had, we had a society and I, to be honest with you, I don't even know this. I was complete amateur. You know, I had to learn all this. I'm, I'm going in there. I have to learn these terms. So for, you know, a relatively small amount of money, somebody could go to the registrar, pay a bribe, get the file, forge some false documents, some resignations, put them as the president or the chairman, and then bribe some police. And they would come over and produce the documents of ownership and escort, you know, the people that had been removed off the property. And I guess that happens, which to me is hard to imagine. So I, okay, armed with this, I head off to downtown Nairobi to the registrar's office. I'm absolutely in over my head. I have no idea what I'm doing. And I walk into this building that looks like it's out of the 1940s. It is stacked floor to ceiling with dog-eared files that are haphazardly stuck into these library shelves in this old creaky building. And I'm like praying, God, you got to help me. And so I'm walking, you know, it seems like it's lunch hour because there isn't anybody there. And I finally stumble across a lone clerical worker. And I said, my name is Pastor Payne, and I am the chairman and president of the Door Christian Fellowship Church. And I would like to look at my file. And he goes, oh, yeah, I saw your file today. It's, as a matter of fact, it's right here on the desk. And I said, what is my file doing on the desk? I mean, this is chaos. This is like this room is filled with desks and files and dust and madness. And my file just happens to be on the top of a pile right here in the center of the room. Why would that be? And he's looking at me like I'm a Martian. Well, this is the file place. And at any time, somebody can take your file out and, and do work on your file because that's what we do here. There's 18 and a half million files stuffed in various <laughs> crevices in this ancient building. And mine just happens today to be on this desk. So I'm smelling a rat. I'm like, oh no, maybe this has really happened. And so finally this guy says, well, come with me. And we go back into his little corner cubicle and he introduces himself as, as you know, as Mr. Kabbalah. And, um, I said, listen, I, I'm going to be honest with you. I said, we've had some challenges to our organization and had threats made. Uh, it was implied that somebody might be able to pull some kind of shenanigans and actually change the governmental structure of our organization. And he goes, oh, okay. He goes, I can help you. So he starts looking through the file. He goes, no, I don't. He goes, who are you? And I tell him, and who are the officers? He goes, no, it, you know, it looks like everything's okay here. And I said, but why is my file on somebody's desk? So he says, um, I don't know, but um, you just leave it with me. And I gave him my phone number and I left. I thought, that's just too weird. So... A few days later, I get a phone call from this guy and he wants to meet me at a restaurant because he's discovered a problem that he's going to help me with. I'm like, oh, great. Did he discover a problem? Did he create a problem? Because the truth is that if you're a, you're a white man from the United States in Nairobi, you are an opportunity. So I'm thinking, oh, brother, man, what, what have I got myself into? So I meet Kabbalah at a restaurant. And he says, yeah, there were some people in and they were asking about your file. He says, but I fixed it for you. And I said, really, what did you do? And he just said, well, I, he says, I just produced a document and I stated that you were the president, blah, 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 blah. And he says, I stamped it. And he goes, now what can they do? I'm thinking, I, oh, my 
slice it, deal with it, can do. I have no idea what you just did. I have no idea why any of this makes sense. And when's, you know, when is the, the open palm going to appear here? You know, because I, I just know how this works. But all of a sudden I have this connection, Kabbalah, in the registrar's office. And so I said, okay, well, that, that's fine. And uh, just kind of left well enough alone, kept, went about our business. The next thing that happened was I got a call from a man named Paul Limonaggi. And he, this would have been a couple weeks later. And I would be at home and the phone rings. Hello, is this Tom Payne? Yes. My name's Paul Limonaggi. I'm from the office of the president. Okay. So how can I help you? Uh, well, I want to talk to you. Talk. So uh, I want to meet you somewhere. So, all right. So I remember they're going to plant drugs at my house to get me kicked out of the country. So I thought, okay, well, um, I'll meet you at such and such restaurant, right? So it's probably a two-mile walk from my house. But the last thing I want to do is give some voice on the phone directions to my house, right? So I, I actually walked to the restaurant. I think my wife was somewhere with the car. I meet this well-dressed man, and he starts asking me questions. And you know, I just stop him. I said, can you tell me what this is about? And he goes, no, 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 this is good for you. Oh, it doesn't feel good for me. <laughs> this is good for me. He goes, no, no, I, I'm here as a friend. Okay. Thinking friends like this, who needs enemies, right? This to me is so mission impossible. I have no idea. He's asking me questions about my organization, asking me questions about this and about that. And he was asking all the questions. And when I asked questions, he would just kind of get a little bit indignant and just made it very clear to me that he was asking the questions. And then he wants to see some documentation. And so, you know, I'm really in over my head. I have no idea. So I, at some point, I felt like I needed to give this guy some information. So I said, well, we'll have to go to my house. And so we drove and he, he remarked, well, that's a long way. So anyway, I went inside, got him the documents and he drove off. What in the world? So I, I went to see Kabbalah and he said, you never discuss your file with anybody. Never. So unless you're sitting here at my desk, he says, you, you never do that. And I said, oh, great. Okay. So another week, I get a phone call. Hello, Tom. This is your friend, Paul. You know, the hair on the back of my neck would stand up. Uh, what can I do for you? I want to meet with you again. I said, you know, and emboldened by Kabbalah. I said, you know what, buddy? I think it's about time you told me what this is about. He said, what? I said, yeah, you know what? I'm, I'm tired of the cloak and dagger stuff, man. I'm really tired of this. I'm tired of you asking these questions. You're not telling me what it's about. And, and I just, I don't think so. And I'll click. He just hung up. So I, went, hmm. I don't know if that was good or bad. <laughs> so in the meantime, my mother from the United States comes to visit us for Christmas. So we are now in the latter part of the year. The election has to be before December 31st. So the president gets to call the election whenever he wants. It's just kind of oddball. So of course he waits all the way to December. So yeah, my mother and, and God love her. She's an adventurous one. She, she <laughs> During came. all this time, grandma wants to come to visit. Oh yeah, yeah. She's, she's okay with she the, the fact that guns full of AK-47 <laughs> welding soldiers you know, are infiltrating the market because there's an outbreak. Oh, it'll be okay. And there was all those people with AK-47 yeah. while we're in a traffic jam running. My mom's making it get on the ground. And my grandma's like, does this mean we have to go home? Can we still go to the market? <laughs> so the mom comes and, you know, we're, we're putting our best face on and, and functioning. I got a call from my co-missionary, John McCarthy, who was in a city two hours away. This would have been after a Wednesday night service. We're already back at the house. And John calls me and says, Tom, two 
government vehicles showed up at the church and wanted me to go with them. And uh, you don't go anywhere after dark with anybody, but much less two Mercedes that pull up at your church. And I said, where are you? He said, I am barricaded at another missionary's house in our city. This wouldn't have been in our organization. It would have just been somebody he made friends with. He says, I am in his house because they allowed me to make one phone call and I'm calling you. <laughs> and so I said, okay. And I said, he said, they're outside. And they want me to go with them. And I said, let me call the, the uh, embassy. So I hung up and called the U.S. Embassy. I said, I have an incident here. I said, an American citizen is um, barricaded at another missionary's house in Nakuru. And um, two government officials want him to go with them. And they said, we can't do anything unless they take him. Wow. And so... I said, okay. So I called back and he wasn't there. They had taken him. So it's 10 o'clock at night and I fell to my knees. I mean, literally. And I just began to pray and I think, God, help me. And the phone rings and it's my assistant pastor, Wycliffe, at church. He says, uh, Pastor, there's two government vehicles here and they're looking for you. And I said, really? What did you tell him? said, I told him that you're not home and you won't be here until tomorrow morning for prayer. And so I decided to pray at home. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, during this time, I, I, I am getting a hold of God. I have no idea what I'm doing. I have no idea what's happening or why. And I remember praying. I said, God, you said in your word, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Surely, surely, God, the incompetence of one pastor won't. And so it was just, it was just like intense. It was, you know, my mom's there. I, there's a missionary that's gone missing. So the next morning, it would have been nine in the morning. I get a knock on the door. It's Abraham, our worker, because you have around the clock guards. And so Abraham, basically, he you know, during the day he would wash the car and clean up after the dogs. So he knocks on the door and he says, Pastor, there's some government officials here and they want to see you. I go, wow, okay. So you have locked gates and you have a little pedestrian gate to get in and out of the gate. And to his credit, he knows not to open the gates and let strangers in that claim to be uh, government workers. What happened with the embassy when they said, we can't do anything unless they take them, and then they take them? What happened? Good question. I did call the embassy back and told them that. And so they know, but I have no idea where he is. It's the right. next day, all right? And I still don't know where he is. All right, so then, you know, here comes the, um, here comes the, the news, pasta. There's some men here. They want to talk to you. So I said, okay. So I, I make the walk out. To the gate, I walk through the pedestrian gate and close it and said, how can I help you? And it's this guy, Paul Limonaji, and two armed men with sunglasses and says, uh, uh, we want to come in and talk to you. And I just had a moment. I had an America moment. It's like, you aren't coming inside here. You are not coming inside here. I'm just not, you know, as an American, I have, I understand I have rights, but I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of morphing this. I'm in another country and I'm playing the John Wayne thing, but I just can't help it because I just, I'm like, you're not coming in here. So as a matter of fact, why don't you have any ID? You know, I'm like, and I'm just, I'm, I'm just, they just push my buttons, man. And I remember he, you know, Paul Lemonaggi just kind of looked at these guys and kind of shook his head and pulled his wallet out, opened it up, showed it to me. Paul Lemonaggi, Office of the President. Okay. And so, um, what do you want? We want to talk to you. So, well, let's talk. He goes, we want, we want to come in. And so, uh, my instincts are telling me, don't trifle with this man. You know, I don't, I don't know what you want to call it. Holy Ghost more. It was just like, 
But at the same time, I'm not going to just let these people inside my house, right? And I felt like, to be honest with you, the only way I put it is I felt like I was in this high stakes poker game, right? So here I am. It's in a, a dark room. 13 years of fellowship investment is in the middle of the table. The cards have been dealt. I have no idea how to play. I don't even know the rules. I have no idea what I'm doing. And the other side is cheating. <laughs> and yeah. Yeah. And so my alarm's going off. And so I start pulling the, the mom card. I go, my, my 75-year-old mother's here, right? She's here for Christmas. And you want to come barging into my house, freaking everybody out. And I just said, I don't think so, man. And, and so he's, he says, look, one of two things is going to happen. He says, either you're going to open the door and let us in, or you're going to come with us. So I played a card. Come on in. <laughs> Want to meet my mom? <laughs> so I said, all right. I, and I think that's when I negotiated for the garage. I said, can, can we talk privately? And he said, yes, that's fine. So we came and he let him in. We're sitting in my garage around a ping pong table. And uh, he's asking me all these questions. Do you know Raila Odinga? No. He says he knows you. I have no idea who you're talking about. He says he goes to your church. Okay. I said, well, there's 1,200 people that come to my church on Sunday morning. I have no idea who you're talking about. He says, okay. He says, um, how do you change your money? How do I change my money? Well, the truth is, there's a number of ways I change my money. One way is I would go to the Forex with my credit card and get absolutely scalped. You're buying dollars on your credit card. My neighbor, Juguna Munyambu, who's a wealthy Kenyan businessman who owns the house next door and the house we're in. He's my landlord. I actually sell him American dollars for shillings, but that's kind of black market. And the other problem is Juguna Munyambu is a Kikuyu, and that tribe is the mortal enemy of the president's tribe. So the last thing I want to do is throw this guy under the bus. I can't do that to him. If I say I buy shillings from Juguna Munyambu, they're going to be over there. And so I think I can't do that. So I said, I, I, I buy him with my credit card. He goes, let me see it. I go, beg your pardon? Who asks that? Let me see your credit card. I'm thinking in my mind, did he just ask to see my credit card? He did. He just asked me to see my stinking credit card. So I get my credit card and hand it to him. He hands it to his uh, goon who takes out a pen and just writes the credit card number down and gives it back to me. I'm going, great, here we go. There goes my balance. And then he starts, he's asking me all these questions like, are you an, are you a, a, an NGO or a society? And to be honest with you, man, I, I'm done. And, and you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be fourth. In my mind, I said, I don't know what the hell I am. <laughs> all I know is I don't want to play missionary anymore, okay? All right? <laughs> that was in my thought bubble. <laughs> And so I, I said, you got to understand something there. I, I don't know. How's that? How, how, how's that? I don't know if I'm an NGO or society, okay? I've only been here a few months. And, and so then he said, what would you say if, if somebody called you a racist? And that's when I got ticked off. I said, well, what kind of a question is that? Did you just ask me that? What would somebody say if I was a racist? I'd say, what the heck do you think I'm doing here? Came halfway across the world to minister to your people? And you asked me that question? What, what is that? I'm here to preach the gospel. I'm here to help your people, okay? Not like I don't have better things to do. I'm starting to really, it's just starting to really get under my skin. And, uh, and so there would have been a number of other questions. And he said, and then he sat back. He, he sat back, he goes, could I say something to you? <laughs> as if he needs my permission. Can I say something to you? He says, I came to you as a friend. And I, I'm trying to help you. And when I call you on the phone, you talk to me in that tone. I said, well, can I say something to you? I said, you know what, man? I am completely intimidated right now. I am not used to being talked to like this. I am not used to being treated like this. And then I decided to play a card. And I'm told, being told not to talk to you. 
Oh, really, Yahoo? First said, I'm being told that somebody's going to pay you to plant drugs in my house to get me kicked out of the country. So I'm starting to push back now. And he goes, what? He pounds the table, what? He says, nobody uses the CID. I said, well, you know that. And I may know that, but this guy doesn't know that. And you know what else? I'm being told not to talk to you. And he says, yeah, by who? I said, his name is Kabbalah, right? <laughs> so I threw Kabbalah under the bus. I said, his name is Kabbalah. Do you want his phone number? I was just talking to him the other day about you and your, your little meeting at the restaurant. And he told me not to talk to you. He told me never to talk to anybody. He says, well, that man will lose his job today. And I'm going, good. Because <laughs> I am like completely... And so, and, and, and so I'm leaning into this guy and I'm saying, and I don't appreciate it. Brought my family over here. I got my mother in there out here being talked to like a criminal. And you're not telling me what this is all about. Okay. Oh, then he said, who's Wayman, Wayman Mitchell? I said, Wayman Mitchell's my pastor. Wayman Mitchell's the man who sent me here. He's the man who has invested hundreds of thousands of dollars into this country and uh, is the leader of our fellowship. He says, do you have anything with his signature on it? I go, probably. Why? He says, go get it. Go get what? Go get something with his signature on it. And in my mind, I'm thinking, I'm being excused. I'm out of here. <laughs> so I said, yes, sir. And I, I get up and go in the house and my mom is sitting there on the couch and there's Jan trying to, you know, entertain her because she knows that something weird's up. Who are those men you're talking to, honey? No problem, mom. I'm honest. Jan, I need to talk to you. <laughs> so we go in the bedroom. I said, I need something with Pastor Mitchell's signature on it. I'm looking around and letters. Surely I got a letter from Pastor Mitchell. She says, um, our marriage certificate has Pastor Mitchell's signature on it. I said, we'll get it. So we get that, and I bring it back out to him, and I give it to him. He looks at it, and he says, does he always sign his name this way? How do I know? What do you mean, does he always sign his name that way? And I said, I, probably. And so, yeah, I want to say this would have taken two hours. This would have been a two-hour conversation, interrogation, you know? In my mind, I'm thinking about every old World War II black and white movie I've ever seen, you know, where the, the guy's in this room with a hanging light bulb, you know, and the Nazis are saying, sign the papers, old man. I cannot sign these papers. <laughs> and why can you not sign these papers? Because you have broken both of my hands. <laughs> you know, so I'm, I'm like, what the, what the heck am I doing here? So, so you, you also have to understand that if, if you back up a few years, when I went on my first trip to Kenya, I'm in the car with the missionary and we're downtown Nairobi and he passes a building called the Nile House. I said, what's that? He goes, oh yeah, that's, um, that's a government building where the CID has their offices. He says, they tortured a missionary, to, an American missionary to death there. All this is running in the background a little bit. I would say that's the closest thing to real fear I've ever experienced. Just not knowing at all what was going to happen. You know, there was this absolute being in over your head, totally not clear on what's happening, what the rules are. Kids, my wife, my mother. So after they get this document from Pastor Mitchell, they leave. And so what am I going to do? I'm going to call Kabbalah. And I called him. I said, Kabbalah, this guy, Paul Limonaji, is back. And, and he, you know, just had a two-hour session with me. And he said, I told you, you don't talk to him. And I said, buddy, I don't think you get it. I don't think you get this. I said, this guy's getting angry. He, says, you, he, he said, you let him get angry. I go, no, 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 no. There's something about this that, that you, you're, you're unclear on. And so Kabbalah says, you probably need to come and talk to the head registrar. I said, that's a great idea. That's exactly what I'm going to do. So I got in the car, drove all the way to downtown Nairobi, go into the registrar's office, took 30 seconds. I sat down. I said, uh, sir, my name's Tom Payne. I'm the chairman and president of the Door Christian Fellowship Church. 
I have an individual named Paul Limonacci that said, he says he's from the office of the president and he all but just interrogated me. And I, I want to know what uh, you have to say about that. He goes, oh, that's the special branch. He says, they do whatever they want. I said, what? So, oh yeah, you, you have to talk to him. That's the CID. So I'm thinking, Kabbalah is an idiot. I was just disrespectful to Herbert Hoover, right? I'm like, and I, I walked out of there stunned, thinking, I cannot believe this. So by the time I get home, I think by then I would have found out that John was taken to a building and questioned for a few hours and then let go. And then I got a call from Mike Stamper, which is another one of our missionaries. And he said, Tom, I know what this is about. So by this time, everybody had been interrogated. But Mike, of all people, I don't know why, he said, I was just at a meeting in our city, which happened to be a number of missionaries that get together for coffee from other organizations. And they were passing around a letter. And this letter is supposed to be from Pastor Mitchell to you saying that Harry Hills is coming in, which was an evangelist in our fellowship, and is going to bring $5 million for you to hand out to the opposition parties to overthrow the presidency of President Moy. I said, you're kidding me. He said, no. So apparently somebody forged a letter from Pastor Mitchell to me, dear Tom, Harry Hills is coming into the country. He's bringing $5 million to be distributed to the following parties so that this African monkey, Moy, which is the racist comment, right, can be removed. So now it's all clicking why he's asking those yeah. questions. Yeah, and yeah. And signature. Raila Odinga is one of the people running against Moy. And Raila Odinga his constituency is the Kapira slums, which is where the church is just right outside. So I said, Mike, what did you do with that letter? He said, I just mailed it to you. I said, you did not. Oh, he said, no. yes, I did. I said, no. I said, Mike, you get in your car. You go back to the post office and get that letter. And he says, I can. I said, yes, you can. And you will. If you have to pay money, you get that letter. And I want to be able to call Mr. Limonaji back and tell him that I have never seen this letter. It is not true. I'm going to have you fax it to him with an explanation. So Mike actually, right after closing time, bought his way into the post office and got the letter out. And so I called, oh my I called Mr. Limonaji and I, I called him and I said, I, I believe I owe you an apology. He said, why? I said, because I think I know what this is about. And he said, talk to me. I said, well, I just got word from one of my missionaries in Kisumu, that's six hours away, that Pastor Mitchell is supposed to have written a letter to me. And I want to tell you that I've never seen this letter. It is not true. And he's going to fax this letter to your office. So he said, okay, you come see me on Monday. I said, where? He said, at um, the Nio house. Dun, dun, dun. I'm like, beg your pardon? So my garage is just right. Here. <laughs> <laughs> my garage is open. My mom will make you some tea. Yeah. So he says, we're, we're on the top floor. I said, okay, come Monday. I go to the Nio house. His floor is not marked. It's not on the, the list. I go up, I'm in his waiting room and praying, oh God, you know, help me. There was actually a Christian magazine on the table there in the waiting room and I picked it up and it there it actually had some scripture that actually ministered to me it was like and so I walk into this guy's office and it's huge this guy had a beautiful big office with a beautiful big desk and I'm thinking oh no this guy's the real deal man this guy had never asked for money he had never there was no bribery here this was national security to him so I sat down and I said, um, you know, again, I apologize. I was getting conflicting advice about whether to talk to you or not. 
this is what I've been told. I want you to know that it's not true. We've never, I've never seen this letter. My pastor would never speak that way. He would never be involved in anything like this. And then I decided I was going to play all my cards. I was going to give him all the documentation that we had about this rebellion, pushback and everything. And um, he looked at it and he said, so you had all this when I talked to you the other day? I said, yes. He said, you know, I'm a very busy man. And I know what he was saying. You could have told me this back in the restaurant. But I said, you got to understand something. This, this is not anything in my reference point. I said, I have absolutely no idea. 100% intimidated. I'm in way over my head. And I was being told not to talk to you. So I said, but this here's everything. And with my apologies, uh, we assure you we would never do anything to undermine an election here. We appreciate the fact that you've allowed us to come to the country. So he said, okay. He says, let me look into this and um, went our way. Within a couple of weeks, the elections came and went. President Moy got reelected. And one Sunday night, right before service, I came out of prayer and Wycliffe said, Paul Limonaji was just here. So you're kidding. He said, no. I said, well, why don't you come get me? He said, because he told me not to bother you while you were praying. I said, well, what did he say? He said that they've done their investigation and they realized that this was somebody lying about you. He told me to tell you that at one point we were all slated to be removed from the country, but they realized that um, it was a lie and that we're, we're okay. After he visited the church, I had a conversation with him and he, you know, kind of reiterated that everything was fine and that if I ever needed anything to give him a call. So after that, this young man who we had um, had to evict for his, his corruption, he called me and was beginning to lobby for more money. He was complaining that we didn't give him enough money. We had given him an incredible amount of money for somebody that had been essentially a criminal. We had been very kind, to him, but he's pulling some kind of labor law, long service leave, you know, this or that. And then he made a statement. He said, uh, do you think that it's possible that somebody could die for what they believe? I said, what? And he said it again. I said, you know what? I'm done talking to you, man. And I hung up. So after this, this guy called me and, and made this veiled threat, I decided... I'm going to call my friend, Paul. And so I said, hello, Paul, this is Tom Payne. Hello, how's your mother? Listen, I don't mean to bother you, but you remember that, that man that we had to remove from the property for his corruption? Well, he called me and he made some threats against me. He says, oh, really? Why? And he said, well, he's asking for more money. And he says, you gave him enough money. And he said, that's not right. He said, you treated him better than you deserve. He says, let me take care of it. So I forgot about it. And again, two weeks later, got a call. Hello, Tom, this is your friend, Paul. How's your mother? He said, um, you remember that young boy that was bothering you? No, when, when an African man calls another African man a young boy, that is a slap. And I said, yeah. He said, I don't think he'll be bothering you anymore. I said, really? Why? <laughs> I don't think he'll be bothering you anymore. I said, is he going to be okay? Yeah, he'll be okay. I said, well, thanks. So from that point on, I decided every Easter, I would visit my friend Paul at his office and bring him a gift from the United States. I brought John McCarthy with me one time because I said, you have to meet him. So I'd bring him a pen set or I'd bring him something. So that continued for a couple of years. And then I would send Wycliffe in my name to go. So Wycliffe came back from his attempt to visit Paul Limonaji and said, he wasn't there. He's in the hospital. And I said, why? He says, I don't know. He's very sick in the hospital. And I said, Wycliffe, you need to go visit him. 
And, you know, I could see the fear in his eyes because they're really intimidated, the Africans, by government officials. I just said, no, listen, you need to go visit him. And I want you to greet him in my name. And I want you to pray for him. And so Wycliffe did. He said he, he went into the hospital. He said there was Paul Menage, A number of the members of the president's tribe were there. Security was there. And Wycliffe said to Mr. Limonaji, Pastor Payne greets you, and he came to, um, to have me pray for you. And so Wycliffe prayed for him, and he said, now I know that you love me there at the door. He says, that, that is amazing. He said, so when I get out of the hospital, Wycliffe, I want you and your wife and Pastor Payne and his wife to come to my house and have lunch with me and my wife. So... It seems like Paul Limonaji had AIDS. I don't know what it was, but he was very diminished. He was a big man. I remember him being 10 and a half feet tall, of course, and I'm pretty tall myself, but he was a big guy. But when I went to his house, he was very frail. He was actually still in a bathrobe. His wife was out of the country somewhere. So it was me and Jan and uh, Wycliffe and Violet. And so we had lunch. And I witnessed to him. And when we were done, we knelt down on his living room floor and he gave his heart to Christ. So there was this intense anointing. There was this intense sense of God's blessing. Hugs us. And it wasn't long after that that Pastor Mitchell came back to Kenya and did a healing crusade. And on the first night of the healing crusade, Paul Limonaji shows up and hugs Pastor Mitchell and said, Pastor Mitchell, you are my pastor and this is my church. And so here's a guy, God only knows what he's done in his life. God only knows what he's been a part of, right? And so he gets saved. I thought this guy was going to kill us. I thought this guy was going to kick us out of the country. And now he's born again, hugging Pastor Mitchell, saying, Pastor Mitchell is his pastor. This is his church. And not long after that, he died. And so I don't know where he gets off going to heaven before me, but this individual that was an incredibly intimidating human being, very imposing human being, ended up getting his heart right with God and making heaven his home. As all this is going on, you're still pastoring a church of 1,200, evangelizing. How did you go on with the day-to-day -day when all this was happening? Uh, I learned how to pray. And so we, we were also building a building because during the, um, the meeting with the head registrar, the other thing he told me, he said, if you don't build a building on that property, some politician is going to steal that land from you. So I had approached Pastor Mitchell. We had never built a building in a third world country. No third world conference had ever paid for itself. So Nairobi has the, the distinguishing honor of being the first third world conference that paid for itself. And then the first time we actually built a building in a third world country. So in the meantime, we were having screaming revival. We did an African version of Heaven's Gates, Hell's Flames. They called it Choosing Heaven and Hell. And our crowds grew from 1,100 to 1,300 to 1,600 people oh on a gosh. Sunday night. And we did it six weeks in a row. So it was an, an era in Kenya that was incredibly ripe for the gospel. We would do street meetings every day. You could draw a crowd if you had a microphone or if you just started like speaking out and rapping or something, you'd have like 300, 400 people. And for that play, uh, the Choosing Heaven or Hell, they actually did a procession, they called it. So they would take like a little piece of the play, like the mm -hmm. Jesus on the cross, and they're whipping him and they'd have like the soldiers or something. And then they'd have people behind him with drums and people just making noise. It was, it was crazy. And they would actually go through the village and people just out of curiosity would follow him. and you would get these crowds like 400 500 people and they just follow them into the church into the seats it was like a strategy an outreach strategy it was That's insane. insane i remember standing in the back of the church we would only been there three or four weeks 
And I'm expecting a crowd of 400 people. And I'm just greeting people as they come in. But Wycliffe had taken the cast, like Melissa said, through the slums. And these people followed this procession, Pied Piper style. So I remember the feeling of looking down the street. And here comes this mob of people. First, it's street kids running ahead of the mob. And then this literally 1,100 people came into our property, into the tent, and it was time to start the play. And they're racing for the best seat. And it was just incredible. And then we started doing that play every year for three nights at Easter. And we were having hundreds of people say we were baptizing 70 to 80 people on oh a Sunday night. Oh my goodness. And of course the devil was infuriated. Right. This is why the attack. So the finances in the church tripled 300%. It wasn't numerical growth that did it because as I began right. to preach on tithing, uh, the Sunday morning attendance actually trimmed down to about 960 but the finances tripled. So I told Pastor Mitchell, I said, if you give me $10,000, I'll build you a building. Because we had a thousand US dollars equivalent shillings every month that beyond church planting, beyond paying for the conference, I thought I can dedicate a thousand US dollars a month if I had some seed money. And so I said, if you give me 10, I said, first of all, this is linked to the property. We really do have to build a permanent structure. And that is defined as a foundation, columns, and a roof. So we can start with that. We'll cover that up with the tent curtains and we'll build one wall at a time. But if you give me $10,000, I'll build you a building in Kenya. So he said, yes. And we began to build a building and they have one of the most beautiful buildings in the third world that you'll see today. And most of it was paid for by the Kenyans. So I was only in Kenya for four years. That's really not very long. When you look at the tenure of some of our other in Zambia, four years was extremely brief, but it was this whirlwind miracle. It was like being strapped to the space shuttle because God just did just incredible things in that four years. We saw 21,000 decisions for Christ. We built a building in two years. We nationalized five missionary churches. And this incident that I just talked about happened in the first nine months of us being there. So by month 10, this crisis was over and we were able then to go on with the business at hand. That was an amazing journey for us, an amazing story for me that God is God, even when we have no idea what we're doing, we have no idea what the solution is, and that God can turn things around. And now it's documented.